As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 55. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today's guest is Rebecca Smith, who's joining us from Hampshire. Rebecca is a longtime reader, a former writer-in-residence at Jane Austen's House Museum in Chawton, and she currently teaches creative writing in the UK. She's the author of Jane Austen's Guide to Modern Life's Dilemmas and the recently published book, The Jane Austen Writers Club. Around here, we don't think you need an excuse to love Jane Austen, but if Rebecca needed one, she'd be set. I found out during our conversation that she is Jane Austen's great, 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 great niece. Today, we talk about all kinds of good books, not just Jane Austen, but if you're a fan, you won't be disappointed. Let's get to it. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, Rebecca, I'm based in America, so right off we're going to notice your accent. Where are you based? Um, In Southampton, which is in Hampshire, in the south of England. We got in touch because you wrote a book about Jane Austen recently. I'm a big fan. We have lots of Jane Austen fans amongst our listeners. What is your connection to Jane? What inspired your interest? Well, lots of things, really. Um, I've always loved her novels. Um, The first one I read was Pride and Prejudice, like so many people (laughs) when I was a teenager and at school. Um, And carried on reading them and loving them all through my life. And then I had the immense good fortune to be the writer-in-residence at Jane Austen's House Museum, which is only really a few miles away from where I live. And while I was there, I did lots of lovely things, um, seeing how the people run the museum and hanging out with the curator and the visitors and um, working with schools and also doing my own writing in the museum because I'm a writer too. And while I was there, I started running workshops, um, writing workshops based on her work. And the book just sort of grew out of that. Um, It's my second book on Jane Austen. The first one's just a sort of fun one, a sort of agony aunt kind of book. But this one is all about Jane and her writing methods and um, really the genius and craft of her work and how contemporary writers can use that um, for inspiration and to follow her lead. Now, tell us about your personal connection to Jane. 
I'm very lucky. I'm Jane Austen's five times great niece, but um, there are actually hundreds of us because her brothers had so many children between them. Um, so it's a really wide family tree. But I'm descended from her brother Francis, who um, was very close in age to Jane, and um, he became Admiral of the Fleet and one of her sailor brothers. Did that inspire an early interest in her works? Or was it um, quite the opposite for some of her nieces and nephews? Well, it certainly did with me, but I was, I was lucky to have um, a family who loved books anyway. And my mother's a writer too, Sheena Mackay, um, on, and the Austin Connections on my father's side of the family. But I used to go to tea with my great aunts who lived in Winchester, and they had lots of lovely little portraits and actually things that Francis Austin himself made because he liked doing woodwork and, you know, carving things when he was away at sea. And um, I loved looking at those things. And lots of those th things are now in the museum at Jane Austen's house. Has being able to see her country and her landscape and the carvings of her brother changed the way you interact with her works? Because many of our listeners are American because the show is based in the U.S. And I, I don't have that background. I'm very jealous of your personal visceral experience interacting with her landscapes and her family and her history. How do you think that's changed the way you read it? And do you pity those of us on the other side of the ocean who can't connect to her in that way? Oh, not pity at all. And also, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> definitely not. Um, and also, she, I think her novels are just so wonderful that, and people enjoy them all over the world. There's a Jane Austen Society in Pakistan. There's one in Brazil. Of course, there's the huge one in North America. Um, but the novels are so brilliant. And people love them, even if they've never been to England. But people do often come on a pilgrimage. Um, she didn't ever set any of her novels actually in Hampshire and I think she was very deliberately doing that so that um, there was a distance between herself and her work and she didn't want to I'm sure for people to think that she was putting them or their lives into her novels so of course she must have been inspired by them but what has been so wonderful is being at Jane Austen's House Museum where she revised first impressions, you know, to become Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, um, and also where she wrote Mansfield Park and Emma and Persuasion and later revised Northanger Abbey. And so being where she lived and worked and in the place she loved so much, it is hugely inspiring. That sounds incredible. How long did you spend as writer-in-residence there? I was the writer-in-residence for about a year. Sadly, the writer in letters. I didn't get to stay the night, which would have been lovely, but um, <laughs> they they can't have people staying the night, you know, because of risks of fire and, you know, the pressure. That is there. sad, but we do understand. I, yeah, I would have loved that. So I was just going up two days a week for about a year, but I try and visit whenever I can and still do things with the museum, like writing workshops and so on. But it was lovely because I started in the autumn and then the residency went sort of right round for a year. So I saw, um, I was there a lot with the museum in all seasons, um, which is just gorgeous seeing the changes in the garden. And yeah, it was wonderful. It sounds like that's a place tourists can visit. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, it's open all year round. Um, and they have visitors from all over the world. They have this lovely map and they get people to put pins in from where they've come from. And they've had people just from everywhere. Yes, it's... Um, yeah, it's open all year, but in I think it's in January and February, just at weekends, up until Valentine's Day, which very appropriately they then open um, everything. <laughs>
Rebecca, what do you read when you're not reading Jane Austen? I thinking about it, I do tend to read novels um, that I love for reasons I love her work. I love novels about families, um, the same sorts of things that she writes about. Um, I I love Anne Tyler's work, and I think she, although when I was lucky enough to hear her interview, and she doesn't give many interviews, um, she said that she'd come to Jane Austen very late in her life. But I think those tiny interactions between people and the way complicated families work, it's exactly the same territory. Um, I do read lots of contemporary fiction as, as well as the classics. Um, and because I teach creative writing, I think it's important to try and keep up with um, what's being published all the time. Who are some of your favorite contemporary writers? Um, I absolutely love Laurie Moore. Um, The book I'm reading at the moment is by a writer called Claire Fuller, who um, is actually quite local. She lives in Winchester. It's called um, Our Our Endless Numbered Days. Um, Brilliant book. Um, I haven't finished it yet. And it's about this young girl and her father is one of these doomsday prepper type people and takes her off into the woods. And it's building this sort of sinister fairy tale sort of existence. Um, I'm really enjoying that. Now, a question I get a lot is what people should read next if they are devoted Jane Austen fans and they've read her novels over and over and over and they want something in the same vein, but obviously there's no more Jane. You must get that question too. What do you recommend? Um, I absolutely love the novels of Barbara Pym, um, an English writer who sadly died, I don't know, about 20 or so years ago. And her works are very often set in villages and have similar sorts of concerns. Um, Very, very funny. I'm almost Um, sorry to hear that because she was on my short list of novels to recommend to you. Oh, well. Uh, and <laughs> so I guess I'm glad you already know and love her. Yeah, sort of. I, I do love her. And I think you can really keep rereading them as well. And fortunately, she was quite prolific, so there are quite a lot, aren't there? Uh-huh. Yeah, I love those. I would definitely recommend those. Okay, well, Rebecca, what role does reading have in your life now? It is just the, one of the things that makes me really happy, um, as well as, you know, lovely things like being outdoors, being with my family, um, writing. But I think for any writer, it's just your food and your drink. It's your escape. It's your comfort. But it's also your stimulus. Um, It inspires you to work harder and work better. Um, I do feel that I don't read enough. I think all writers probably feel that, um, that I often waste too much time. You know, at the end of the day, I should be reading and reading. not slumped on the sofa sometimes (laughs) but no I I love reading and one thing I also really enjoy now is audiobooks which I've sort of more lately got into Um, so when sometimes if my eyes are too tired for reading then at least I can listen to audiobooks or on journeys as well. Rebecca is there anything you want to be different in your reading life or different areas of work that you'd like to explore as a reader? I just feel there are so many books that I want to read and I know life will be too short to read everything I want to read and reread everything. Um, so I, I do feel I need to, although I spend lots of time reading, I feel like I do need to make more time for reading, which is hard. Um, I 
because I teach at the university, so um, I'm quite often marking students' assignments. And delightful though that is, it does sort of take away um, time that I could read maybe when I'm retired. (laughs) (laughs) The dream. One day. That's what I keep telling myself. One day. All right, Rebecca, let me tell you how this works. You tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, although we already covered that a little, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. Tell me three books you love. Okay, um, first of all, I absolutely love Jane Gardam's A Long Way from Verona. Um, I read this, I think, looking back, I know I was in um, what, I think I was probably about 16. So I was in what in England we call sixth form. It's a story about this girl called Jessica Vi, and it's set in um, the Second World War and in the northeast of England. And Jessica's father's a curate. Um, He has been a schoolmaster, and they've just moved to this very bleak part of the world. Um, And this is one of the books that really made me into a writer. Jessica is just the most um, engaging, funny narrator. Um, and it has quite the novel has quite a short time span and at the beginning of it this man comes to her school um, and reads various bits from books and gives them a talk about becoming a writer and um, Jessica um, then sends him um, lots of scraps she's only nine and sends him lots of scraps of paper and things she's written on and he writes back saying Jessica Vi you are a writer beyond all possible doubt this is all in the first chapter um, and then the story follows her through um, quite a few misadventures um, it's just absolutely wonderful it's really funny too and very touching I've never read that, but I like the sound of it. Now, that's not a new work, is it? How, when was it published? No, no, it's an old work. Um, just flicks the book open to have a look. So I think it must have first been, oh, 1971. Yeah. And so I read it in what would have been the 80s. Um, it's by Jane Gardam, who's published a lot of novels, and I love her work. On um, a Jane connection, she's wrote a wonderful novel called The Sidmouth Letters um, about someone who finds these um, lost secret letters about Jane Austen's romance about which is very little no, very little is known about it in Sidmouth. Um, and she's quite prolific, um, wonderful, wonderful writer. Rebecca, what's the second book you love? Um, a second one I love was, oh, and it's so hard to pick just three. Um, I absolutely love um, Francoise Sagan's A Certain Smile, which I read when I think I must have been about 19, 18 or 19, um, and first published in the 1950s. It is it's a strange mixture. It's very, very romantic, but underneath it does have this bleakness. And Sagan was an existentialist, and she explores the sort of ennui and the boredom of her young central character, the narrator Dominique, who is a student at the Sorbonne and studying law. And one day Dominique goes to with her boyfriend. Um, to meet the boyfriend's uncle for lunch and Dominique falls in love with the uncle and has an affair and this book had a profound um, impact on me and actually it made me give up a place at medical school to be quite really (laughs) yeah Um, so I came to Southampton which is where I now teach to study medicine and I lasted two weeks but 
I think my head just wanted uh, and my I just wanted to be in 50s Paris doing something far more romantic and I tried to change to English and sadly they were full up but history would have me so I switched to history <laughs> uh, but this book um, is it's wonderful about um, falling in love and having a broken heart. And it's just full of all these, it's very short. It's full of these observations. Um, one thing that just stayed with me for life. And I now say to my children, my daughter's about to turn 20 and my son's 21. And things like 20 is the age of hilarious laughter. And, <laughs> and Dominique lifts her hand as if to suggest futility. And it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Um, and with this backdrop of Paris and then Dominique and Luke go for this sort of secret two weeks in the south of France, um, just desperately romantic. Um, and the it has, I won't spoil the ending, but it has this wonderful, wonderful um, bittersweet ending as well. But I absolutely loved it. And reading it now, um, I still love it. And I'm always buying it for um, nieces and telling my students to read it if it's the kind of thing they'd like. Um, the cover I first had, which was my mum's, was this wonderful orange penguin with this picture of Dominique on the front, this sort of gorgeous sketch of this very pretty Parisian girl. Um, lovely book, really lovely. That sounds wonderful. I haven't read either of those, and um, oh. I wasn't familiar with the authors. I wonder if that's because I'm not an English teacher or because I am an American, or are they better known in your circles than they are um, in mine? Jane Gardam, I, I, I checked that all the books were available in America because I didn't want to be recommended oh, that people couldn't go out and buy easily if they wanted to, and they are published in America. Um, Jane Gardam, um, an English writer, and Francoise Sagan, um, a French writer, whose work... Um, she caused a sensation with Bonjour Tristesse, which um, is the better known. And then A Certain Smile was the follow-up to that um, and then went on and published lots of novels. Um, but perhaps I, I suspect she's better known um, in Europe than the USA. Okay. Well, I appreciate you doing your part to change that. Oh, Rebecca, you. what's your third favourite? Um, my third favourite is Emma by Jane Austen, which I just adore. It just seems to me the most perfect novel for so many reasons. I love the way, there are so many things I love about it. And also it's a really pioneering work and one that I feel that as a writer, I can still learn so much from. I love the way she uses the village setting as this sort of contained community. Um, I love the way that she, um, the narration is managed with her, um, Jane's pioneering use of of the free and direct discourse and the way that we're just given Emma's point of view all the way through and so if you're lucky enough not to have read it yet and you're reading it for the first time you just completely go along um, with Emma's way of seeing things um, even though that's challenged a few times um, in the book by people like Mrs Weston and <laughs> Emma's brother-in-law I think it is um, but um, it is so clever and it's as well as being it seems to me when reviewers say, oh, here's a writer at the height of her powers, I think Jane really was with this novel. Um, it was the last novel that she finished before she started getting really ill. And I love Persuasion, but I do feel the ending does seem a bit hurried. Um, and we know that Jane was dissatisfied with the ending of Persuasion and that she substituted another one. And I, although I adore all of Jane's novels, Emma does seem to be the most perfect one. And it's 
pioneering in the way she uses language. Um, there are pieces, um, there's a bit where um, the characters will go to the strawberry picking party at Mr. Knightley's and um, the way Jane Austen there um, captures Mrs. Elton's um, speech when they're all bending over and picking these strawberries in the sun. It really does pioneering and predates um, the work of modernist writers like Virginia Woolf and James Joyce. And it's just so tragic that Jane died so young and who knows what she would have gone on to do. But um, thank goodness we have Emma. I do just adore it. And I also really like Mr. Knightley. I don't think he's my favourite Austen hero, but um, no, I do like him. So Emma's your top Austen novel. Then Ooh. Persuasion. What comes next? Oh, I don't know. Persuasion. I, I can't <laughs> read them. I don't know. I do love Persuasion, especially at the moment. Now it's autumn. Um, because it it does seem like, um, you know, Anne Elliot's thoughts about autumn and the sweet sadness of Mm -hmm. it all. Um, I, I love Sense and Sensibility too. Perhaps I might, I don't know. I'm always changing my mind about which one's my favorite, (laughs) but Sense and Sensibility is definitely up there. I do love Eleanor Dashwood. And I think as one gets older, one has more and more sympathy for her. Um, I remember when I first read it, I was probably too young for it and I, kind of thought Marianne was the main heroine. <laughs> and of course it's Helena. Okay, Rebecca, it's time for a change of pace. What's a okay. novel you're not so crazy about? Well, I'm here I would agree with Jane Austen and in Northanger Abbey where she has her wonderful um defence of the novel and she talks about um I will not adopt, she says, that ungenerous and um, custom, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure, the very performances and so on. Um, You know, she says we shouldn't um, slag off other people's novels. And so I thought really hard before saying a novel that I don't like. But the one um, I'm going to say, and it's well written, um, it's very effective, but it's Um, a novel I really wish I hadn't read and that's Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero. Um, I read this when I was a student so at the time you know the time of reading Francois Sagan and so on but there is something in it that I mean a lot of it but one particular scene that is so nasty um, so unpleasant that I really wish I hadn't read it and even you know 20 something years on the horror of that scene has stayed with me and I really wouldn't wish reading that on anybody. So I hope by saying this, it won't make people go out and read it. But, um, <laughs> and I've made sure that um, I think I threw away my copy because I didn't want my kids to read it. Um, not that I censure their reading, but there are some things that are so nasty, you can't, um, you just can't, once read or once seen, you can't forget them. And um, this particular scene is one of those things. Now, I would hope that people would know a little bit what they're getting into if they pick up this novel. So it's set in L.A. in the early 80s, and it's a lot. I've, I've never read this, but the little I do know is that there's a lot about drug culture and moral degradation and what happens when people indulge all their impulses. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that's definitely right. And um, the central character, it's a sort of spiraling down... I mean, he's he's trying to capture, you know, the despair and the boredom, but also the nastiness and these young people whose parents are very rich. But I think there are some things which one could 
say cut about. <laughs> Even some of the covers of this one that I've seen in bookstores just look, I want to turn them around on the shelves. They're just creepy, which yeah. suits the con. So if anybody was thinking about reading it because they wanted, they were curious about your favorite, I hope we've told you enough so that you can make an informed choice as to whether or not that's right yeah. for you. Yeah. And I think perhaps, you know, he was a very young writer and marketed at young people. I picked it up as a young person. And I'm sure I know lots of my students read it and don't have the same um, strong reaction to it. But I do think there is enough awfulness in the world sometimes. Um, but yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, the writing is great and all sorts of things. But I'm going to say that one. Okay. All right, Rebecca, I have ideas for you, and we will Thank get you. to them. <laughs> ideas for you that aren't Barbara Pym. We will get to them right after the break. Welcome back. Rebecca, let's talk about your books. Here's what I'm noticing. It sounds like you read a lot of contemporary fiction because you teach it, but your favorites are a little more established. Uh, you love books about families. You love books about women. And... You love books that have staying power, the kind of quality, well-written literature that people will still be reading in 10 years and not just through the end of the Christmas season. Does yeah. that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I want to recommend all the modern classics to you, all the modern British classics, except I fear you've read them all. So oh. wish me luck. We'll see how this goes. Book one is My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. This is more modern than your favorites, which made me think I have a shot at you not having read it yet. So yay. It just came out last year. It's a fairly new release from American author Elizabeth Strout, who before this book was best known for Olive Kitteridge since it won her a Pulitzer in 2009. But I think it has a tone and a feel that I really like for you. So it's reflective, almost wistful, which is a funny thing to say because Austin's tone was so different from this, but I still see it in your favorites. It's a short book. It's barely more than 200 pages. You could read it in an afternoon, but Strout covers a lot of ground. She's launching off from the perspective of Lucy Barton, who's enduring a very boring stay in a hospital in New York City recovering from an illness. Since she's just stuck there in her hospital bed entertaining the occasional visitor, she has all this time to stare out the window and reflect back on what happened then. Poverty, the AIDS epidemic, uh, art and the artists she knew. But this book is especially about relationships. Um, she reflects a lot on her relationship with her husband, but it's especially about the relationships between mothers and daughters, her own particular relationship and then from there, she generalizes. The tone and setting are completely different from Austin, but it's very much like her in a different way that she's taking this ordinary event, which is a pretty boring hospital stay, and turning it into something worth reading. How does that sound to you? That sounds brilliant. I will definitely read that one. Okay, I'll be curious to hear what you think. Book two. What about Dorothy Whipple? Have you read much Whipple? I'm afraid I haven't. Oh, don't be afraid. That makes my day. We are going to go with Someone at His Distance by Dorothy Whipple. This was first published in 1953. And again, we have a family story. It's about, well, it's about a marriage where somebody makes a stupid decision that they later regret and everything falls apart. So in one sense, it's about how fragile love is. But in another sense, it's about how, how strong those bonds once formed are. 
this is Whipple's last work. She wrote a whole bunch of successful bestsellers previous to this. And when this came out, her publishers told her, like, ah, you know, this is kind of a quiet novel. It's all interior. Everybody wants snap and pop and action these days. So it didn't sell particularly well at the time, but it sold very well since then. This is really the story of one family's life but also all the people who come into it and affect it. And what I really like about this is not only the ways that she shows you what's happening from each character's perspective, and she helps you understand their motivations in a way that's very interesting as a reader, but you also get to see all the repercussions that this one event has on the people around them, the family, the neighbors, the friends. And the way that she portrays that those ripple effects of one decision is really interesting. So again, 1953, this is held out for 65 years now. If you're going to read it, I really recommend you pick up one of the beautiful Persephone editions. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. It sounds a little bit like Anne Tyler's most recent novel. I have not read that yet, but I know how you feel about Anne Tyler, so I like that connection you're making. The um, one, um, A Spool of Blue Thread, which tells the story of a family and... Um, you know, tiny decisions made and the repercussions down the years. I need to read more Ann Tyler, especially, especially if you recommend her to Jane Austen fans. So I've never heard that connection before. And now I'm extremely curious. Okay. Book three. What do you know about A.S. Byatt? I have read Possession, but I have to confess that's the only one. I loved it. Um, but I'm afraid that's the only one I've read. I I think that's her best-known novel by yeah. far, and that's the sort of literary scavenger hunt. It's set in academia where yeah. two yeah two professors are trying to draw a connection between two famous long-dead writers, and it's based on a real story, a real relationship. But I can't remember who who the real writers are right now. Do you? Actually, I can't either. <laughs> if we yeah, find it, if we find yeah. it, we'll put it yeah. in show notes. Yeah. Well, the one I like for you is A Whistling Woman, and it inspires me with confidence that you've read Possession and enjoy it. But I do really like this one especially because Byatt writes women really well. And since in A Whistling Woman, she's focusing on her heroine, Frederica Potter, that ability to really portray contemporary women really shines just because she focuses so much in this novel on that one character. Okay, so this isn't terribly old. It came out in 2002. What I really like about this for you is Frederica has always wanted to be a writer. So when this starts, she's still hoping to become a writer. She's working for TV, and um, it explores her professional ambitions, her personal relationships, and her inner wrestlings with the, the tensions between what she's doing with her life, what she wants to do with her life, and the influences the people that are close to her are having on that. It's not a perfect novel, but it's just so... It really drew me in. I really want to know what happens next. I think Byatt writes her with great sympathy, and she does write her female characters really, really well. They just ring true. How does that sound to you? Thank you. I will definitely read that one. Well, I cannot wait to hear what you think. Rebecca, out of those three novels, what do you think you'll read next? The Dorothy Whipple sounds really appealing. I think I'll probably read that one. I really like it for you. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca today. Please head to the podcast site to let me know there what you thought of my recommendations and to share your recommendations for what Rebecca should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 55. 
and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and for the show at What Should I Read Next. And we always appreciate your ratings and reviews on iTunes. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.